2013, lecture discussion number 104 on the book of Romans. Um, and as this is the third feast day of the seven feast days, there are seven feast days, as you know, unleavened bread, I'm sorry, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, that's today, and then comes Shavuot, or what we would sometimes call uh, weeks, but we'll call it uh, Pentecost, because most people recognize it that way nowadays, we've twisted it around a little bit, and then trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles. Okay, so those are our seven feast days. And this is the third one of the seven feast days of the Lord. This is first fruits, or the third feast day, uh, or the third high Sabbath, or the third festival of the Messiah. All of those are applicable. All of those are what it is. You call it whichever you wish. But this uh, being first fruits, and since it's first fruits, it's the first uh, um, day after the weekly Sabbath that included uh, that week that included uh, Passover. So this year, Passover was on a Monday, and that means the weekly Sabbath uh, is Saturday, and the day that follows the weekly Sabbath of the week that contains Passover, that is always first fruits. Okay? So Sunday is always first fruits, and this Sunday is always first fruits. And that's what Bill was alluding to in his uh, elder. Um, information. This year, as I said, Passover was March the 26th, Saturday, March the 30th, today the 31st is the first day that follows that Saturday, and thus is first fruits. Uh, that's Leviticus 23, uh, 9 through 14, and it's a high Sabbath day. Now, first fruits is the day of the year that Jesus Christ uh, the Creator God in the flesh. Can't say that enough. Jesus Christ, Creator God in the flesh. Also, he says he is the invisible God made visible or made manifest. You can figure out who God is by looking at him. Because we cannot see God. What, what, what God did, essentially, is take on humanity and take on a physical form and clothe himself in uh, humanity or added humanity and we can see Christ. He is the invisible God himself made visible and he is all of God made visible for our finite capabilities. He's the I am and this is the day that he, the ancient of days, the I am, the creator God, the invisible God, this is the day that he chose to do something which is to resurrect himself. John 2.19. He resurrects himself. Again, John 2.19. John 10.17. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. He says that as clearly as he can. And the implication in there is that he can do it whenever he wants. And he does. I have the power to end my life. I have the power to take it up again. And first fruits was the day he selected to resurrect, it, to resurrect himself. And thus it's the day that the triune Godhead chose for their resurrection. And that is the doctrine of the triunity of God. And as we have been recently discussing, if there is no body resurrection of Jesus Christ, then there is no salvation. Let me say that again. If there is no body resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no resurrection. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. If there's no body resurrection of Jesus Christ, then there is no salvation. Sorry. 
There's a baby making noise over there. It's distracting me. Who's, whose child is that? Whose grandchild? Oh, it's mine. Okay, he has permission to make as much noise as he wants. And he also is providing commentary. I can see that. If there is no body resurrection of Jesus Christ, then there is no salvation. We all perish in our sins, and of all mankind, we are then the most pitiable. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 18. Paul makes it clear that the resurrection is required for salvation. So the body resurrection of Christ, his power to lay it down and take it up, essential for salvation, necessary. There is none unless he has that capability and, in fact, does that. For if Christ is not resurrected, he is not something. He is not sinless. In order to be resurrected, he has to have no sin in him. And his sacrifice and his substitution in the blood and the flesh that he provides are unacceptable because they're contaminated, they're poisoned. If he did not resurrect, that meant his body went into corruption, and corruption is caused by sin, and he has sinned, and we cannot use his body or his flesh in any way to help us become saved. So that's why his resurrection is so essential. And if Christ is not God himself with the power over death, then again, there is not enough blood and flesh. Because there's a lot of people that need to drink the blood and eat the flesh, and if he's not God, he doesn't have enough supply. And he needs a a large supply to save all of those who line up to take the cup and take the bread. And he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? John 11, 25 through 26. And that must be true. And it must be believed or there is no salvation and our lives are purposeless, hopeless, and temporary. Waiting to be exposed as such. Because as soon as we die, we cease to exist. Unless... Jesus Christ was body resurrected. Now, every first fruits, um, I'm faced with a dilemma of doing what I just did on a larger basis. I'm faced with the dilemma of putting up, a, setting aside my current series and putting up a, a special first fruits lecture, if you will. Or can, or my other choice, of course, is to continue along with my existing topics. And if you heard me, I said this is lecture discussion number 104. So there's been 103 prior to this one on this particular subject, all related, going all the way back to Romans 1. We're in Romans 5. It's only taken 104 lectures to get through five chapters. And we're not quite done with five. But I, I feel a lot of pressure to do a special First Roots lecture and talk about Jonah and all of that, as you know. Because Jonah died in the fish. And it's important for people to know that Jonah was a type of Christ. And he was in the fish three days and three nights and vomited up and resurrected alive and went into Nineveh. Very important to know that. But this week, this time, I'm not going to do a special first root sermon. I'm going to stay the course because we're still battling through Romans 5, 12 through 14. And we're likely to be at Romans 5, 12 through 14 for quite some time. And I realize, however, that in our uh, vast uh, Internet empire, and by, if by, by vast you mean, okay, a few hundred, actually it's probably bigger than that now. I, I see evidence. I have one lecture that has had as many as 2,000 downloads. And I have a wonderful gentleman in 
in Florida who wants to know why no one, why there aren't more of them. Um, and I appreciate him very much, and uh, I hope he always stays uh, uh, delusional. But uh, I'm well aware that I have a narrow audience, <laughs> and it's okay. So if by, by vast it, you mean my relatives, um, I, I recognize that there are some who will be listening on the Internet only to a few lectures, and they pretty much always hit these kind on these special days because they're expecting the special first fruit uh, lecture. And I feel this great pressure, and I think I have to have um, a catchy title. So I want to draw in the masses, kind of a marketing move by me here. I want to be seeker-sensitive and contemporary. Think uh, Joel Ostinish. Is that a word, Ostinish? It will be now. So I worked long and hard on my title, as I always do. So I wanted to give you my special First Fruits lecture title. I was going to put it on the board, but it's too long. So this is what I got to draw them in. Here's my title. A brief introduction on the concept of the continuity of the germ plasm with respect to Romans 5, 12 through 14. There's your special title. Your special sermon. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking how unoriginal. Every church in town does germ plasma continuity on first fruits and the same old sermon every year. And you'd be right. Every year it's, it's the metaphysical implications of subatomic diameter or physics and biology, mind and brain, germ cells and somatic cells, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But I gotta do it because believe it or not, seriously, our vast uh, internet audience really does want me to do it, and I get all kinds of letters, and some very nice, and some not so nice, and some not so kind. And I brought two this evening that represent the norm this week. Uh, they kind of poured in, thanks to Bill O'Reilly, of all things, uh, because he said some things that, frankly, are crazy. Bless his little heart. And so everybody writes me and says, I want you to... And I got one sent to me. I'll read it here in a moment. Anyway, uh, and both of the letters that I got are answered by understanding the mechanics of reproduction, or what's called the August Wiseman discoveries of the properties of germ cells and somatic cells. And though the writers of each letter that were sent to me have no idea that's what they're doing, they have no idea that the questions that they're asking is really germ cell continuity or germs, uh, 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 germ plasma continuity. And it really does fit on first fruits because it explains many, many things that you can read in your Bible. The virgin birth being one of them, his death being the other, his resurrection being another. All of that is explained by an understanding of the continuity of germ plasma. So I don't think either the writer of the letters realized that was the case. Uh, uh, but we're going to begin uh, today with rereading the incredible truth that is uh, Romans 5, uh, 12 through 14. Because once you understand what is really being said in Romans 5, 12 through 14, I mean really understand it, not just not just the, th the doctrine of it, but also the uh, biological implications of it. Uh, Romans 5, 12 through 14 was written by a, a, a genius. Now Paul was an extraordinary man. He had an audience with God himself out in the uh, desert, but it is written so perfectly. When modern science reads Romans 5.12 through 14, specifically um, uh, 5.12, when they read that, they're stunned that it's in a book. Who could have known this thousands of years ago? 
2000 approximately. Who could have known this kind of scientific detail? And they are well aware of what it means. And there's a famous observation by Gavin De Beer that we're going to get to later as a prime example. But let's read it again so you got it in the forefront. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the earth, or entered the world, sorry, and death through sin. So one man caused all of this death and this sin by something that he took, something that, a poison that he ingested. And that poison has affected all of us and we're all dying and it's obvious that I am aging right before your eyes. Therefore, just as one man, uh, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death, death spread to all men because all sin, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam who is a type of him who was to come. Those verses are extraordinary. Now, I'll read two letters we got. I can find them. I got them in here somewhere. Here we go. One was sent directly to me. The other was said, uh, here I found this on some site, and would you please respond to it? I don't think they thought I would do it on first group. Like I said, it's so applicable. Good morning, Pastor Chronister. My name is Philippe. I thank God for your effort in studying the Bible. I learn something new every time I listen to a sermon from you. I'm a pastor of a youth group here in Toronto, Canada. I have a question for you. In a previous sermon, you had mentioned key points about the virgin birth. The purpose of the Immaculate Conception of Mary was for transfusion of blood. Oh, I'm sorry, not of Mary, of Christ. I, I, the purpose for the Immaculate Conception of Christ was for transfusion of blood. Adam's blood was poisoned. That I was able to understand. But why is it that Mary had to be a virgin? And let me read now Jason that was sent to me. I just copied it down. So it's, uh, Jason says this. Adam and Eve did not literally exist. The Bible teaches only lessons. And those lessons are up to the interpretation of each reader. On the flip side, you have people like you, I assume that's me, though I don't think he knows me, who state the Bible is the unerring word of God. That seems quite ridiculous. We know humans wrote the Bible, so you're already wrong. Those are my two letters. And those two letters actually cover... Romans are covered by Romans 5:12 through 14. Exactly. Philippe from Canada would like a biological explanation for God choosing a virgin versus a theological explanation. See, a theological explanation would be um, the portrait aspect of the virgin, what it symbolizes. I have the virgin symbolizing who in, for example, um, the New Testament. It symbolizes the church. And I have the harlot symbolizing what in the New Testament? Specifically Revelation, Jezebel as well in the Old Testament. The counterfeit. That would be the theological aspect of it. The biological would be, does he need her to be a virgin? And germ cell plasma now comes into play. Continuity of germ cell plasma. 
And Jason is certain the Bible is not literally true. Adam not real, Eve not real. The Bible is merely of human origin and design. And that is exactly why this came up, because Bill O'Reilly, like I said, bless his little heart, uh, that's his view. That all it does is teach lessons, and each lesson is interpretable by whoever reads it. They are not, in fact, real. God did not, in fact, inspire it and use humans to write it. It is not word for word God's uh, thoughts. And people like me will continue to say that. And these two are, are concerns, these two concerns um, are solved by the continuity of germplasm, and nicely, by the way, and uh, in the case of Philippe, are refuted in the case of Jason. Romans 5, 12 through 14 proves the existence of Adam and Eve, literally proves it. So whenever somebody says to you, there was no actual literal Adam and there was no woman that he renamed Eve, you can say, Romans 5, 12 through 14 proves it perfectly otherwise. Now, you may not know why, but you'll be right. Adam and Eve are proven, and the germ cell functions and the germ cell mechanics provide insight into virgin biology. So both of that, germ cell plasm, will prove to you that Adam and Eve literally existed, and germ cell functions and mechanics will provide insight into the virgin biology, which will help you satisfy or settle the issue as to why he chose a virgin. God selected the virgin. The virgin aspect, what I mean by that is God intended for Mary to be a virgin. You've got to ask why, just like Philippe did. Why? Because germplasm continuity allows him to have an option. But he didn't take the option. God insisted that she be a virgin. And Philippe is absolutely correct when he says... Mary had to be a virgin. God's omniscience makes that the case. God's omniscient. He selected Mary. Obviously, his omniscience eliminates all but one option. That's the nature of omniscience. There cannot be any option if you're omniscient. So Mary had to be a virgin. But again, we've got to ask the why. And the, and the way to approach the why is this way. Why was it necessary that Mary be a virgin? And that, and what you do with that is you then ask the inverse. What would be the result, hypothetically, she can't be anything but a virgin, but what would have been the result if she was not? The virgin birth, as you know, has long been ridiculed. And it was today by Jason. Mock, because it's right in Genesis 3.15 with regard to Eve, that's where the prophecy begins, is it with Eve, or with the woman. It's long been mocked as a fable, and long been ridiculed. Secularists secularists and monists, if you don't know what a monist is, the monist believes that you are only one physical thing, that you do not have a soul or a spirit. All you have is a physical body, and upon the death of the physical body, you cease to exist. And as you know, if you've been here, uh, it's impossible for you to cease to exist, because if you only, if you do not exist past death, then you never existed. You were just simply waited to be discovered as not existing. If that makes any sense to you, think about it for a while. Existence requires immortality. But the monists have said that it uh, that the virgin birth is nonsensical. 
of no intellectual value. There's no purpose to it. There's no thought process behind it. It's just something that somebody invented, and it clearly is not that. It's extraordinary. And that's starting to change, that thought. Biological science is proving the worth and the purpose of the virgin birth and the mastery of its design, the intellect that had to be behind it. In other words, whoever it was who conceived of the virgin birth had an unprecedented understanding of human anatomy. And we don't, we have no idea what the person who conceived of the virgin birth was able to know. We don't yet know what whoever that was knew. I'll call him he, give you a clue, a clue here. Whoever wrote Romans 5:12 through 14 and Genesis 3:15 and Isaiah and everywhere the virgin prophecies are had an understanding of human anatomy that we yet have learned. We still don't know. The writers of scripture, the men, somehow knew that the solution to the transfer of death could be circumvented. I'm sorry, the solution to the transfer of death could be accomplished by a virgin birth. They figured that out somehow. Or they didn't figure it out. They simply wrote down what they were told to write, which is probably as likely. But the author of Scripture knew what this man learned only a hundred years ago. August Wiseman. He was a biologist. A hundred years ago, he began to wrestle with germ plasma. What he's really after was acquired or inherited or acquired characteristics, genetic characteristics. He was attempting to prove evolutionary monism in some fashion. He started to test it and instead came to the conclusion that uh, the opposite was true. So we're going to try to find out what he uncovered. He uncovered the, the position that is called the continuity of germ plasm. And we're attempting to follow behind August Wiseman. We're going to try to learn the same profound truth that he did, that very, very few people know. You will not find, I promise you, if you walk through this city the rest of your life and every day you talk to somebody that you know and say, can you please explain to me August Wiseman's position on the continuity of germplasm? You won't find another person that knows it. Now, I have a lot of medical people in here. I'm looking around. Did you go through the, you can raise your hand quietly without anyone seeing you, without me pointing you out. Did you go through any class on August Wiseman's continuity of germplasm? No, it's not even taught. But it is an extraordinary truth that proves Romans 5, 12 through 14 was written by an unequal genius. So we're going to follow behind him. And we're going to ask, what is proved by Mary being a virgin? Because something is proved. As you know, there's a 12-step Hebrew betrothal ceremony that Christ follows perfectly. You'll read John 14:3, where he says, I'm going now to prepare a place for you. That's the ninth step of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. Word for word, he is following this step pattern. In my father's house are many mansions. That's when the bridegroom leaves the bride and goes away to build the bridal chapel, if you will, or the bridal room. 
So then the bridegroom comes back and he gets her and he carries her away, snatches her away, and he goes into the bridal room and he emerges from the bridal room and he presents the white or what was the white sheet or the white cloth to his friends, proving that she was, in fact, a virgin. And then a celebration in the marriage feast. Christ said, I am following that 12-step pattern, step by step by step. That's how you can tell when I'm returning. That's how you can figure out what I mean and what I'm saying. And they got it. We don't. We don't even know that there is a 12-step Hebrew betrothal ceremony. So, with that in mind, the the 12-step, the bridegroom proves the virginity of the bride by emerging with the and holding aloft what was once the white cloth or the white sheet. Ask, what would have been said if the virginity could not have been proved? And who would say it? What is the purpose of proving the virginity? Because that takes you back to why Mary was a virgin. Obviously, with respect to Mary a virgin, it would have been necessary in order for the hovering of God hovers Mary God is the father of the child, and God is the child all simultaneously. And if you don't have that in your intellect, get it there, because that's what's happening. He is the Holy Spirit hovering. He is the father, and he is, in fact, the son or the child's son. All three are God simultaneously. That is the triunity of God. Can we figure that out? No, we're finite little dummies, and we will always be. But that's what he says is true. So in order for the conception of Mary, it would have been necessary for God to bypass the virgin biology. Do I need to get more specific? Good. Welcome back to high school, 7th, 8th grade, right? And it's necessary for him to have proved that she is, in fact, a virgin. And note that that bridegroom, virgin, bride ceremony that I just talked to you about is a portrait of Christ in his church. That's how he has set up his rapture, as you know. He's going to come back, he's going to pick up the bride, take her away, and then bring her back after a seven, or a, in the case of the, of the marriage ceremony, it's seven days. In the case of Christ, it's a seven, seven years. He's going to come back, and he is going to prove that the church is now spotless. And hold up aloft the proof of that. He is following that ceremony exactly. It's a portrait of Jesus Christ and the church, okay? And add in the contrast of the virgin symbolism versus the harlot symbolism, and you're beginning now to figure out why it's necessary for Mary to be a virgin. God, by and through his omniscience, eliminates an accusation that Mary isn't a virgin. He proves she is. And mankind would have made it had Mary not been a virgin. Her virginity proves something. It proves, see, let's just carry it the next step. Back to the Hebrew betrothal ceremony for a second. The man enters into the, the chapel with his wife that he has brought there. He comes out of that chapel, that room, and he holds up the fact that she's a virgin. What has he proved besides her virginity? You can do this. Come on, I heard it. Okay, maybe I didn't hear it. He proves that if a child is born, who's the father? He is. What is God doing with Mary? 
proving that if a child is born, the child is God himself. Because somehow the biology has been uh, intact and though the birth exists. So her virginity proves the fatherhood of God and the Godhood of the child. If that makes sense, I hope it does. To put it another way, Mary's virgin status proves that God is both the father and God is both the child simultaneously. And I want you to think through for a while and you'll it'll become obvious to you. But that answers Philippe's question. Now on to Jason in a covert approach kind of way. August Wiseman, 1930, or I'm sorry, 1834. 1834 to 1914. This man figured out something that was extraordinary. He's a professor of biology at the University of Freiburg. He began to conduct experiments on the Darwinian evolutionary mechanism that was called acquired characteristic. Once again, I know what you're thinking. What does this have to do with the taking up again, the resurrection of Jesus Christ through his own power, because that's what this day is about, right? What does this have to do? Hopefully you have noticed the difference between his resurrection and our own resurrections. He can lay his life down and extinguish it in an instant at will. That's what he did on the cross. He extinguished his life in an instant, and stunned the Roman centurions. They're watching him up there. He is unaffected by this crucifixion process. He directed them where to go. He goes where he wants to be. He makes sure that he is on the exact same spot on which the the skull of Goliath has been buried, and he puts his cross there. And they are stunned by the power he has. There's nothing they can do to stop him. They can't manipulate him in any way. He's in total, complete authority. Makes total sense. He's God. Duh. But what really stunned them is he's on the cross and he makes sure at 3 p.m., exactly 3 p.m., at the exact time that the priest is cutting the throat of the lamb and, and saying it is finished for the ceremony of Passover, that is the exact same instant he says it is finished and his voice is louder than the priest's voice. We make sure that's the instant. And once he has done that, he blows his life out like a candle. And he's gone. Perfect vitality. You can see that with the Moses typology at the end of Deuteronomy. He has total vitality, total control. He's saying things in a loud voice. He's in complete authority. And then, boom, he's gone instantly in a second pop and stunned the Romans. They had no ability to do anything to him. And they responded, this is God. This surely must be God. So he can lay his life down, extinguish it in an instant at will, and he can resurrect himself at will as often as he would wish repeatedly. He could do it over and over again. Take it, lay it, lay it down, pick it up, take it down, pick it up. Just as quickly as you can imagine. He has that kind of power. And we, of course, do not. 
you cannot extinguish your life with your mind at will instantly, nor can you take your life back up again. You do not have his ability. That's what he meant. I have that power. I'm God. You're not. That's a very important thing to, to remember. It seems simple. He's God. We're not. Learning that will help you dramatically go through your life. Anyway, hopefully you're going to see how this all fits together. This Darwinian theory of acquired characteristics states that any living thing which acquired a particular advantage would automatically pass that advantage or benefit to its offspring. What it means is is that if I go through life and I do a lot of push-ups, my offspring would be stronger. My characteristic that I acquired in my life is passed on genetically to my offspring. Uh, that is the uh, Darwinian uh, position, actually by Lamarck, uh, the position of acquired characteristic. Now, it's obviously absurd, isn't it? But they went about trying to prove it wasn't absurd. And August Wiseman began with this crazy notion you, you you can recognize it. I was talking to Anna the other day about the Chinese. Uh, the Chinese would bind the feet of their, their women, or the young girls, right? In order to make their feet more attractive, they like small little tiny feet. What this has to do with the size of Anna's feet, I, I offer no uh, information. She can't catch me. I'm really fast. But they would bind the feet to make the, the girls' feet very, very small, right? In the hope that when the next child was born through that, and of course it crippled, mutilated, essentially, that girl or that woman now. But when she gave birth, they were expecting, hoping, acquired characteristic that the baby would have smaller feet. Had no impact at all. Because there's no such thing as acquired characteristic. Even though it's an evolutionary dogma, you'll hear it today. And, and this acquired benefit Advantage, they hoped, the evolutionary monist hoped, that over time a linear progression in development is achieved and a higher form of life is guaranteed. Because whatever characteristic I give you, you're able to pass on to your offspring. Your offspring pass in, and I hit this exponential uh, uh, lineal development. And we're going to be a higher life form. And, and we are not. That's not happening. We are further away from the genetic perfection the opposite. But anyway, August Wiseman decided he would test this, and so he got rats because nobody liked rats, and so nobody protested cutting off the tails of thousands and thousands of rats over hundreds of hundreds of generations. In the hope, not hope, but in the thought process that if I kept cutting off the tails of rats, what would happen? Pretty soon I would have tails, uh, rat, ratless, ta tailless rats. Got it. I need to take medicine. He did it, and did it, and did it, but never were there any baby rats born without tails. Never. And he became very suspicious of acquired characteristic. The acquired characteristic of the cut-off tail was never transferred to the infant rats. Now, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, what is that, Romans 5? It's an acquired characteristic. The Bible is the absolute opposite 
of what August Wiseman determined. That made him very interested. Anyway, moving along. Wiseman quickly concluded that the acquired characteristic theory was a mistaken premise, that there was no such mechanism. He concluded that every human body, every animal body for that matter, carried within itself a deposit of hereditary substance. That's a fancy way of saying that there is a substance inside of us, inside of one of our cell systems, that is a hereditary substance. It's a deposit of it. And he called that the germ plasm, or the germ seed, you will see, sometimes called. And he said this was a reservoir of specialized material from which the elements of the subsequent generations would be formed. So, you begin to understand what he meant. You begin to solve the virgin birth and the actual existence of Adam and Eve. Let's keep going. In other words, inside of all of us and animals, and all of animals, there is built into this, uh, there's built in a resistance to change. And Wiseman knew nothing of gene theory at the time. No idea. Uh, and consider that fact when you're weighing the scope of his conclusions. He had no idea how genes and, and the microbiology and the and the kinds of information that we have today with regard to DNA. He had nothing, none of that. He said there's some kind of germ seed in us that is resistance to, to change. It, 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 and it's in animals as well. And it has this hereditary constitution, this stubbornness uh, that is not going to allow an alteration. I can cut off all the tails I want. I'm going to get tails. Flies make flies. They put flies in the dark. They were so hopeful this occurred. They put them all in the dark, hoping they'd do what to them? Affect their eyesight in future generations. What did I get? Flies that could see. Seems pretty simple to us. But the evolutionary monists are nothing if not persistent. They want you to believe that when you die you cease to exist. And I'm saying to you again, if you cease to exist, you never existed. It was just You were just simply waiting for your lack of existence to be manifest. Existence requires, by definition, to be immortal. But flies made flies. In the dark or in the light, outward influence on the germplasm is, is ineffective. doesn't happen. And out of all of this, Wiseman figured out that there was a distinction between germ cells and body cells. The germ cells give rise to the body cells. This is where it's going to get tough. You came to church on a day you thought was Easter, and it really isn't Easter, that's Ishtar. But you came there and you're finding out about body cells and germ cells. Germ cells give rise to the body cells. What do I mean by that? I'll call them now what they are, the somatic cells. You can call them body cells. What do I mean by body cells? How many of you ever stayed awake in seventh grade biology and feel no shame because everyone's just like you? But now's the time you should have stayed awake. What happens is, is once the sperm and the egg, the sperm fertilizes the egg, what, what occurs almost immediately? Come on, mom. What? I begin to have cell division, and I have the formation of what? 
of the formation of a human being. Immediately, there's one now. Okay? I have one of those starting to happen, and it's this multiplication. I had my grandson over here telling me to shut up, which I expect will happen more often as life goes on. Because I'll be drooling and be unable to say anything intelligent very shortly. But I have this division. I have germ cells and I have somatic cells or body cells. What do you think the body cells turn into? They turn into the body. That's what they are. So the germ cells give rise to the somatic cells. In other words, the body cells come out of the germ cells. The body cells divide and eventually cause the development of the organs of reproduction. And when I get the organs of reproduction, what happens then? So let's start again. Very tough. Listen, I know this is tough. I got it. I got germ cells. Those germ cells give rise to the somatic cells, which start the process of forming the body. You. Me. And once the uh, reproductive organs, whether male or female, begin to form, the germ cells then do something really interesting. They go to those reproductive organs and they house themselves there and they separate away from the body cells. That's why it's called the continuity of the germ plasm. The body cells are built out of and by the germ cells, the germ plasm. But the germ plasm is not built out of the body cells. The germ plasm causes the body cells, and then the germ plasm is housed by the reproductive organs that the body cells uh, divide into. This is Wiseman's discovery. It's called the continuity of the germ plasm. Probably made no sense to anybody. Try it on your friends if you think it's easy to explain. Why am I doing it? It's extraordinary information for you to know. Here's how it works. This might help you. Some people are visual. I'm not drawing it correctly yet. Now, I can put the little fancy membranes around it, but I, 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 I don't want to uh, do too much of this because you should see the drool all over the auditorium. It's astonishing. I know, if I drew faces on them, you'd think they were some kind of caricature of my family. Okay. Uh, let's, uh, let's, I'm going to try this diagram. You can see I'm a great artiste. Um, this is the Fishberg and Backler or Blackler diagram. Fritz Kahn as well. But uh, I'll just try Fishberg and Blackler for today. What happens is, as I start out with two germ cells, what happens when they go? What do I have next? I have four germ cells. And I'm making them black. And then what do I get? Participate. I get eight germ cells. And then what do I get? Sixteen. Ooh. In the meantime, while that's going on in cell division and, and develops into that young man over there, 
this one over here, I have the somatic cells. I'll make them red. Okay. Now, at 16, what happens is, is the germ cells congregate, just as I'm showing. But this amazing thing that God has designed, that he describes at Romans 5.12, he describes at Genesis 3.15, he describes in Isaiah, this amazing thing starts to happen. The germ cells separate from the somatic cells. And they go down here. And after that process, then they become totally separated. And you have this. And I have somatic cells here. And I have all the germ cells down here. Completely safe. Billions of them. He takes, what do you think he's doing? He's protecting the germ cells. From what? From death. Now this is the difference between a woman and a man. Uh, uh, the ovum and the spermatozoa. But I have this division, this separation. Separ separate. 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 I have the separation that occurs. And it's an extraordinary biological fact. After the separation, the germ plasm are set apart into this little area down here. And very important. Where does it go, by the way? Where do the germ plasms go? They go into the reproductive organ and they're housed there. And it's important to know that this truth, the germinal elements within the gonad do not participate in the somatic processes. All they do is perpetuate them. I'm sorry, per perpetuate themselves. So they separate and they begin to perpetuate themselves. Because once one understands all of this, okay, which we're going to continue to study in the weeks to come, once you become aware that uh, AC Customs and VH Motrum were quite correct, Motrum said this, the germ cell, the sex cells in the female, are the only physical immortal thing. Let me repeat it. The germ cells, the sex cells in the female, are the only physically immortal things. The seed of the woman does not die. Very important to know that. It is not in the nature of the seed of the woman to die. And they do not die because they have limited energy. The sperm does die. How long does the sperm live? You should all know this again. Didn't you, weren't you ever drafted into the army? You wouldn't believe what they wanted me to watch. I've never forgotten it. Never forgotten it. I talk to Bill about it all the time, driving back and forth from Eagle River. You cannot believe what they showed me. I'm remembering all of it while I'm standing here. That's what they told you. Do not do any of these things if you end up in Vietnam. I did not end up in Vietnam, which is why I love Richard Nixon. 
contrary to all of that. He gave me a draft number of 292, and I honor him for that. That's a joke. I'll get mail. The seed of the woman does not die. It's not in their nature to die they, because they have limited energy. They do not die because there is limited energy. That's, but the sperm do die. The male sperm dies after how many days? Okay, look it up. There'll be a test. The seed of the woman is a unique property. Not so the spermatozoa. Genesis 3.15, perfectly correct. It calls the woman, it says of the woman, that through the seed of the woman will come something. What? And the husband immediately names her something. He changes her name from woman to what? To Eve, which means what? Life. Through the woman is life. Her seed does, it does not have in its nature to die. The man's seed has in its nature to die. Not the woman. The woman has plenty of energy. The man's seed does not. Now, the death of the body of the woman will cause the death of the, of the uh, germ cells of the, or the germ cell plasm of the woman. But there is nothing in the nature of the germ cell plasm that dies. Genesis 3.15, perfectly correct. How did it get perfectly correct? How did they write that? How did they know that? Moses was a what? He was educated by the Egyptians. He was a shepherd. And he writes that the seed of the woman does not naturally die. And Adam called her light. They got it right, right on the button. And finally, Gavin De Beer said this. He was a famous monistic evolutionist. He believed that when you die, you cease to exist. One wonders, he said, if Pauline theologians realize that Romans 5.12 doctrine of original sin involves the inheritance of an acquired characteristic. Yes, Gavin, we do know that. That's why I brought it up. How do I get an acquired characteristic? It's not possible. We just proved it by cutting rat's tails. But yet I have an acquired characteristic. Because Adam poisoned himself, all of us die. How did that happen? Because the seed of the woman has not in its nature to die. We die because the death gene or the mortogenic factor or the death generator is transferred by the sperm of the man. Exactly as Romans 5.12 says. How did they get that right? And we knew that incredible truth, or some of us do. It proves, by the way, a literal Adam and Eve. You see, and there's Jason now. On the ropes. You see, Adam and Eve were endowed with physical immortality. And then they acquired the characteristic of mortality. They did not have death. They had to poison themselves to get it. And then they pass it on to all their descendants, but not through the woman. They pass it through because of the man. With the exception of one. One is exempt from this process. Who is that one? God himself in the flesh. Christ himself. Now he would know how to get around this, wouldn't he? He's God. The acquired characteristic must have contaminated the germ plasm in the male. The only mechanism that will satisfy all the conditions laid down by scripture. 
And God put it all together so that you would know that when he was born in September and died on Passover, which was Monday, but in the week of that day, he died, he extinguished himself on a Wednesday at 3 o'clock. You would know that one, just as the centurions knew, that one is not subject to death. He has control over it. He's the only one that has this information about him. Of no other man, is it said, could do what Christ did, or did what Christ did. The Romans 5.12 says the male seed uh, only transmits death conditions. But one was not affected. And he could lay his life down and take it up again. And he did it on first fruits at will. His germplasm is still and forever intact. Do you know why? His germplasm is unaffected. Because he has to fix ours, doesn't he? And what symbol does he use it, do, do it with? How does he symbolize it? Communion. You take his blood and his flesh. And you replace his, or yours with his. He has infinite resources because he's God and capability because he's God. He is able to do it and he is willing to end physical death. The Bible, his word, given supernaturally to his chosen transcribers, is perfect in its description of the continuity of germplasm. Perfect. Find me another book. You can't find it. This is the only one written thousands of years ago that has the continuity of germplasm perfect. What's that tell you? Who wrote it? Who knew that? What percentage of people know it today? It's proof. It's proof that God was the child that God was the one crucified. God was the one that had control of his death. And that God was the one that had control of his resurrection. And today, we are doing what? Celebrating the resurrection part. We are saying at communion that I want the new blood. I want to be resurrected to life. I'll take the blood. I'll take the flesh. I'll take anything I can get if I have any brains to me. Why does he give it to you? Why did he go about proving all of this to you? Essentially, he's holding himself aloft, isn't he? Saying, I'm the proof. Why? Why does he save anybody? See, you always ask that question. I'm saved. Why? Why are you saved? What's his motive for saving you? Are you worth it to him? Do you have anything you can give him that he wants? He owns everything. You've got nothing. He calls us wretched, blind, poor, naked. I think stupid. I'll have to look it up. We have nothing. So why does he save us? Because he wants to. Why does he want to? It's the kind of person he is. That's what this is all about. 
understanding that. Let's rise and be dismissed.